0: The birth story love letter is a unique offering that captures your personal experience. This offering is a keepsake or memento of sorts, a treasured capture of your sacred life memory, a love letter to yourself, your children, born or unborn, your family and friends, community, and ancestors. This offering includes recording space to share your story, edited audio of your birth story, and transcription of your birth story in both a digital and custom created hard copy. This is our oral history gift. A story that should be honored by being heard, shared, and remembered. Stories shared in this manner are for the storyteller's personal use. They will not be shared via the BSIC podcast. Head to the Birth Stories in Color website to begin your love letter.
1: Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson.
0: Today's episode features Alisto Thomas, a mama, wife, spoken word poetess, and creator of Momo's Mama Monday, sharing her second birth story with us. Hello, Alistal. Welcome
2: to the show. Hello. I'm so glad to be back.
1: Y'all, I'm super pumped. I always like a second story.
2: (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back.
2: It's so funny. I literally like I have
1: to share it with the ladies (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) the joy that that brings us to know that your first thought is I gotta get this today (laughs) I gotta get in that space (laughs) oh my goodness so funny Ah, well tell us um for those of us for those of for those who might just be meeting you for the first time again, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family.
2: Yes, my name is Elistel. I have been married to my husband, Reynold for four years. Um, together, our initials actually spell art and we ed- are an art based family. So um, we had our first child in 2018. Um, She's a New Year's baby. So um, no, she's not the first. (laughs) Um, And she um, was born January 1st. Uh, Her name is Monet. Uh, And we had our second baby, January 27th of 2021. And no, that was not the plan. Um, And she was um, named Soleil. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> she was named Soleil Hope um, because Soleil, of course, is French for sun. Um, and so we named her Light and Hope because during 2020, it was such a challenging time for everybody. And she really was a source of light and hope for our family. So that's a little bit about us. Can you tell us about your pregnancy? Yes. Um. So... My husband and I are both creative entrepreneurs, um, but of course, in true entrepreneurial fashion, sometimes you have some financial goals that you need to just hit that are, um, um, you need to hit a little faster. <laughs> so I had gotten back into traditional work and was doing a short uh, sleep there, and it was a, a just shortly before the pandemic started. And so I had been let go from that role um, and my creative work was being impacted because of the pandemic. So not only had um, I had taken on traditional work during a slow time in my creative business, I was going into what was supposed to pick up as a really exciting time um, for the month of April, only to be hit with the pandemic and being let go from traditional work. Uh, so. The plan originally was in April of 2020 that we were going to spend a month in London, England. Both my husband and I having our own personal endeavors professionally, um, and then collectively we were supposed to be doing things together as a family. And of course we couldn't go anywhere. Um, So that was in April and in May we found out that we were pregnant. And this time around, um, I was not in denial that I was pregnant the first time. I knew within my heart of hearts, but I denied it for like a week post what was supposed to be my period. Um, And I say that as being an important fact because my body is a calendar. Like I, my period comes when it's supposed to come. I'm textbook. I don't miss a day. I'm not late. (laughs) Like that's just not my thing. I'm early before I'm late. And. It was about five or six days before my period was supposed to come. And I was like, I'm pregnant. I know I am. will we just hold on before I can actually uh, take a test? <laughs> and I did. And there was a super faint line. And I was like, okay, I'm pregnant, but I'm not going to say anything just yet because, you know. And um, I took the test. A few days later, I took a digital test, and it said pregnant. And I was like, yep, just like I knew. So don't I call my husband upstairs? And I'm like, oh, hey, so um, <laughs> I just need your opinion on this. <laughs> um, is this one line or two lines? And he's like, what? And then I showed him the digital test that it confirmed So, yeah, it, it was um, – Something where I was like on board from the beginning this time around then with the first time. <laughs> I was all like joy filled about being pregnant because it was like right on schedule for what we wanted, especially not knowing all that we know in hindsight about the pandemic. It was like, oh, it's okay because by summer this is going to be solved, I'll be pregnant, I'll be happy, and it fits our schedule and blah, blah, blah. Um, and everything it was going great until about uh, July, and I was just super, super exhausted. And I could not for the life of me figure out why I was so exhausted. It turns out that my anemia um, that I literally had since my period started um, had become very severe. And so it was something that we were monitoring my hemoglobin levels and all the rest of it. And everything was just low. Um, and my B12s were low as well. So I ended up having to take B12 supplements. I was taking iron supplements twice a day. I was drinking smoothies. Like I was doing like all the things, eating all the foods, eating everything. Um, but nothing seemed to be working. My energy was super, super low. So that was one health concern that I had. Um, the second health concern was my mental health. Uh, so something that I didn't really deal with much in my first pregnancy um, in a very head on way was acknowledging um, prenatal anxiety that I was dealing with. Um, and for my first pregnancy, I don't even really want to say that I had prenatal anxiety. It was just, there's a lot of circumstantial things that were happening um, that resulted in just I my mean, overall wellbeing being um, not at its peak. Um, but this time around it was, definitely I was having a mental health situation. Um, So I was dealing with a lot of anxiety. I was having panic attacks like four to five times a week. Um, I was just overwhelmed with and and overcome with all of those um, emotions and processing and having it be that we were in a pandemic. So I had a lessened support system physically available, um, coupled with now having a toddler for this pregnancy to care for in addition to having these extreme low iron levels my energy levels were just shot in the first trimester was tough because i had food aversions which i never had before i never experienced before um morning sickness that i never dealt with before um having my mental health and my physical health i'm not at its best was very very challenging Um, so from a health perspective, what I ended up doing was speaking with my midwives. Um, I went with a midwife again this time and speaking with my midwives and being very frank. So when they were asking those questions about my mental health, um, where I was at, what kind of support system I had in place, I didn't hide. I was like, I don't have support. I'm not supported. They're like, oh, it's a pandemic. And I'm like, no, no, I don't have support. I'm fearful for this pregnancy um, because I'm experiencing health challenges that I didn't experience before. I don't feel like I'm showing up for my first child in the best capacity that I can, um, which in turn means I can't show up for myself. I can't show up for my husband. I'm not showing up for my friends and my family. Um, But yeah, I was just like, I was really hyper concerned and dealing with panic attacks so regularly um, was interrupting my quality of life. So um, I was very frank with them about that. And so they connected me with a therapist and I was doing weekly therapy sessions for um, from about six months until the end, no, five or six months pregnant until the end of my pregnancy. Um, and it was transformative in terms of walking through what Those fears were unpacking them. What did that look like from a racialized birthing perspective? Um, what did it look like being pregnant in a pandemic? What does it look like? Um, not being your physical best and, and the fears surrounding that um, and, and what that meant for my child or my and my child. So all of those things were things that were contributing to my mental health being at stake and therapy definitely helped me with that. Um, and in terms of anemia, my um, iron levels kept dropping severely to the point of when I was approximately 34 weeks pregnant or 36 weeks pregnant. Um, I had to go and do an IV iron infusion treatment. Um, and my iron still did not get up to a level that I was comfortable with. Um, so I requested that to be done again, which I did have a second treatment. And um, I really pushed for that too, because being that my iron was so low and I had made the decision for a home birth, which is a whole different portion that we'll explore later, later. Um, it was really important for me to get my iron up. And once my iron levels were up, um, it made the pregnancy easier. I actually was like, I could be pregnant longer. In my third trimester, like my last month of pregnancy, I was like, I don't want the baby to come yet. <laughs> I want her to come later because I started to find feel good and feel like myself. Um, so, yeah, overall, it was a more challenging experience of a pregnancy than I had with my first, um, coupled with those physical and mental challenges, but. Being pregnant in a pandemic, not having my husband be present, not having him be present for ultrasounds, not having him be present for midwife appointments, not having him present to advocate for me or support me in the ways that I needed to um, have that support in place was very challenging. And I think also impacted his experience throughout the pregnancy, which in turn impacted um, me and our family. Um, My expectation and hope of what I wanted um, With having my first child involved in this process of care, for example, visiting appointments with me was something that we didn't have. Um, Celebrating the life that was to come through, like, say, a baby shower was a missed opportunity. Um, So those were all things that I also dealt with and had to grieve. I had to allow myself to grieve those um, misses and losses what I had expected and hoped for that didn't come to fruition in this pregnancy because of the pandemic. So while it's hard for me to say it was a tough pregnancy, um, I can confidently say it was a pregnancy that had its challenges. <laughs>
1: um, you were going with midwives again. You were doing um, like a really deep dive into mental to your mental health. And I love the the honesty and transparency that you led with that. Um, to really be like, this is what I need. Like, I'm I'm not doing all right right now. Here's what I actually need to move forward. Was there anything else that you did to prepare for your birth?
2: Oh my goodness. Um. So to get to the point of deciding what my birth plan was had been a struggle. It was a journey. Um. For two reasons or three reasons. The first being my mental health state. Um, it was very challenging for me to be able to decide on something because of all of the fear and anxiety that I had built up um, throughout this pregnancy and about my birth experience that I wanted. It was very hard to adhere to like a final decision. So that was the first thing. The second thing was the fact that I was going to be birthing in a pandemic. So our original birth plan was to stick to our plan that we had with our first child. So with our first delivery, it was um, our first birth plan was to labor at home for as long as possible to show up at the hospital and birth this baby and everything will be successful. Um, The challenge with that in birthing was it. The challenge with that birth plan in a pandemic is that the stipulations around when you can arrive to a hospital, um, when your partner can arrive to the hospital or be upstairs with you in your room, um, the idea of birthing in a mask was something I was not a fan of knowing what my strengths and weaknesses were in labor, being the power of my breath is my strength um, and a mask would not... um, Allow that to happen. Um, But also, just the stipulations around the regulations of how quickly you could be processed to being admitted to l and all the rest of it was impacted by the third factor, which is I had very fast labors. So, um, transportation from home to hospital would have been in question. Um, Admittance would be in question when my husband would be able to get upstairs would be in question. Um, And the rule that my midwives had described was that. Um, I could not be admitted prior to being five centimeters dilated, but I could not be transported in an ambulance. Uh, Sorry, I would have to be transported in an ambulance should I be greater than six centimeters dilated. But having that I have such fast labors and my active labor transitions go so quickly, um, I would literally have to be laboring in the car until I was five, seven years to go upstairs to L&D to be admitted and whatnot, um, and and go through that whole process while I was quickly transitioning to being fully dilated, or um, I would have to be tra- labor at home for as long as possible and be transported by ambulance to the hospital and would not be the hospital of my choice. So those were all options I was not comfortable with. Coupled with I would have to birth in a mask, and kudos to anyone who can, but that would not have worked for me so the decision was to birth at home but because of my mental health state and going back to my physical wellness in terms of being severely anemic I wasn't comfortable with that decision either um just because I was so fearful of hemorrhaging and blood loss of course coupled with anemia that never works um so there was a lot of of challenges in terms of Adhering to my birth plan, and and wanting to decide that I was even going to have a home birth <laughs> before I could even think about birth preparation. Um, so, after speaking about it with my therapist and figuring out what my fears and my hangups were around adhering to my birth plan, um, I determined that I needed to have some of my health stuff situated before I could make a decision. So, the first thing I needed to figure out was. My iron levels. So once I did the IV iron infusion treatments, I was much more on board with being comfortable with a home birth. Um, After that, I was then able to plan and prepare. And it had to do with a lot of mental work. And not just with my therapist. I'm a huge proponent of affirmations. Um, So I printed affirmation cards. I made my own affirmation cards. I mean, I sell them, but like I had to make one specific to birthing and addressing those fears that I had and creating positive statements around those fears to counteract them. Um, And I did some um, refreshers, I guess you could say, around birthing and laboring through just like Google and YouTube. (laughs) I watched a lot of home birth content. I read a lot on home birth content, how to prepare your home, um, having conversations with my midwives about how to prepare my daughter. Um, and having a childcare plan in place because that was also a big source of anxiety for me. Um, where we live, we don't have family close by, they're 30 minutes or more away. Being that everyone had their schedules, plans, families, pandemic related bubbles, et cetera, um, it was very challenging to determine on what our final childcare plan was. So we had to determine what that was. Um, we had a tentative one in place. I wasn't 100% comfortable with it. It brought me great anxiety. Um, and literally by the Lord's hands of intervention, my sister-in-law, who had no idea that I was dealing with any of this, came over um, one day and just said that she was going to be our child care provider for when we were in labor with no ask, no question. It was just her saying that's what she was going to do. She had designated herself as such. Um, and that was an answer prayer. And so that was our childcare plan. And once that childcare plan was in place and I was comfortable with it, I was able to then prepare for um, our birth in all the ways that we needed to. And from a home birth perspective, I needed to buy things, for example. Um, I needed to physically prepare our space, um, which were all things that I wasn't allowing myself to do until I had a birth in place and until I had child care in place so um to summarize <laughs> um I had to figure out what our child care plan what our birth plan, our child care plan was our birth plan was um before I could get to that mental health perspective of um, letting go of fears and anxieties and preparing myself with affirmation preparing our space and preparing my daughter
0: Alisa, you're still you're in Canada correct?
2: I am. I am based um, in a suburb just outside Toronto. And are those
0: regulations just for like your, your area?
2: Or is that for like the whole country? And that would be for our area. So to be honest, in the province that we're in, um, there's different regulations dependent on the municipality or the area that you're in. So there's some parts of Ontario, which is the province we're in, um, that is pretty much like normal. Um, there's a few, you know, stipulations, like you can only have one birthing partner present in the hospital, um, things of that nature. Like once you're in, you can't leave, but it's pretty flexible. Um, but we are located in a suburb just outside of Toronto and Toronto is a hot spot. And while we're not as hot of a hot spot, (laughs) we're a warm spot. Um, we have certain regulations in place, um, and they're ever changing. So that was another point of anxiety for me as well, was that I couldn't project what um our pandemic plan as a province slash a hotspot area um would look like closer to our due date because it would be changing from month to month, sometimes even week to week.
1: Thinking about all the shifts and all the all the shifts with this pandemic. Like you know, like usually we're like, yeah, let's let's get your birth plan, let's get your birth preferences together. But like hearing you having to like really think out and describe point A to point Z and then like all the other points in between that. Yeah. I don't have a word other than just really highlighting that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And that was the thing, like I had so many fears that if I went through with a hospital birth that my husband would miss the birth of our child because the regulations at the hospital would impede him from being able to be upstairs with me in time. Um, because my labors progressed so quickly, I was fearful that um, someone wouldn't contact him in time because my labor would progress so quickly that I wouldn't be cognizant of mine to, to be able to contact him. Um, I was fearful that we wouldn't reach the hospital in time. They wouldn't be processing um my case as quickly as they need to, to have me admitted. There was just so many factors. And my midwives really were advocating for a home birth for me. Um, because last time with my first delivery, um, I got to the hospital parking lot at 1230 and I was holding a baby at 125. So by the time I walked up to the room, by the time I was um, in a room, in a bed, everything, and pushed the baby out, It was less than an hour from being in the car to holding the baby. So my midwives were very much like second babies. I was showing signs, like early signs of labor for for weeks leading up to um, my due date, which I did not reach because the baby was born early. Um, All of those types of indicators, um, along with a a fast delivery. Yeah, they were like, a home birth is probably your best option because at that point, your only fear and concern will be if your midwives will be present um, as in if they will make it on time versus a birthing in a pandemic hospital with all of these regulations as quickly as you deliver, there's too many factors at play here. Um, will child care arrive on time? Will your husband, will you arrive on time? Will your husband arrive on time? Um, will you be admitted in time? Will you end up having a baby at the side of the road? <laughs> will an ambulance have to come and get you I'm bringing you to a hospital that's not a hospital of your choice. And especially being that I am a racialized person giving birth in Canada, while we don't have enough statistics around um, what it means to be a racialized birthing individual, simply because Canada does not take racialized statistic information, um, which is problematic in itself. Um, I knew that I would not necessarily be protected in a hospital as a racialized birth in person. And I knew that I needed my husband present to be that advocate for me at my most vulnerable state. And that was something I was not going to sacrifice. Um, and with the pandemic conditions in place at the hospitals, there was no guarantee that he'd be with me every step of the way, the way that I knew I would need him to be. Um, and I wasn't comfortable with that. So it was like all the things just led to to a home birth, and in the end, that was a perfect an ideal birth and ideal birthing plan for us. It just took a really long time <laughs> with all the factors um, for me to get there and make that decision.
1: So, uh, Canada. <laughs> we we all just questions. hang on. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs>
2: well, that's the thing, is it's we not even Canada. Because there's some parts of Canada where it's like they're in their own bubble. There's some provinces out east, for example, Very, they're, they're living life like it's life. You know what I mean? But we are in a hot spot and our province has had some questionable decisions made in terms of leadership and in how we manage these things and, and prioritizing um, birthing individuals has been so underprioritized that um even my frequency in in maternal care and prenatal care um was half. I saw my midwives 50% of the time that I should have probably less than 50% of the time that I should have. Um, I was seeing them every other month at one point. Um, in my last weeks of pregnancy, I should have been seeing them weekly. I was seeing them bi weekly. Um, I was not being seen as regularly as I should have been seen, and not to the fault of my my care providers, but to the fault of government regulation. But, um, yeah, so so problematic in so many ways in terms of management of laboring pregnant individuals during a pandemic.
0: A couple things um to my understanding. A racialized person in Canada is basically a visible minority, right? Like, if you don't look white, if you're not Caucasian.
2: Yeah. Anyone who falls under the category of Yeah. So Black, Indigenous, person of color. Yeah.
0: Okay. Two. Mm-hmm. So if you never categorize your patients, then you never have a problem,
2: <laughs> right? right yeah, yeah. it's so that's why it's so problematic and we're doing the work there's a lot of um, leaders in maternal care who are doing the heavy work of sending out the surveys asking the questions there's studies that have been that were being done while well, i was pregnant to be honest i don't know if they're still going on um but where i answered surveys of if I, it, it was um requesting um, individuals who had given birth within the last three years, what was your experience like? And just answering a series of questions and, and um, trying to get super specific to get those details, to get that information. Um, even if it's just based off of a particular geographical space that's very finite within the grand scheme of the nation. Um, the work is being done, but it's not being done by the government. <laughs> um, it's, it's not being prioritized by the government. Um, the statistics of, say, for instance, there's statistics that we've seen coming out of the U S that say things like three to four times, um, increase for black women. For instance, we don't have a statistic like that, that comes out of Canada. Um, their estimates, you know what I mean? Like their, their projections, their, their guesses really, to be honest, um, yeah, so there's nothing that I'm aware of. Let me let me also phrase it that way. There's nothing that I am aware of that the government has done to allow for effective collection of racialized information and details for statistic building.
0: So that's um kind of mind blowing. As <laughs> a you know, descendant of enslaved Africans living in America. We often say we're gonna move to Canada. <laughs>
2: It's because it's just
0: a lack of information about what's going on in Canada that makes mm-hmm. it look like things are green. I still
2: say come because the, like, the U.S. looks like crazy. I mean, you'll, you'll get free health care, <laughs> like you know what I mean. Um, it's the best. So come, still come. <laughs> y'all. Crazy four years that we were just eating popcorn, watching <laughs> like. You know,
0: It doesn't matter.
2: (laughs) You say, girl, come (laughs) on, doors. The doors (laughs) to the church are Mm. open. Mm. Understood. We'll make room. Gotcha. We'll make room. But but while that's said, um, it's still very highly problematic for racialized individuals in Canada, um, especially even for Indigenous groups, right? Like, they're the first people of this nation, and we do not have. Enough respect and integrity in our care for the indigenous community. Um, we do not have enough respect or care for um, the people who we are borrowing this land from. Essentially, um, how are we going to even have respect and care for other? People? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, 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 it makes sense because if you're not respecting the people who have first inherited this land, how are you going to have respect for anyone else? <laughs>
1: Tell us about your birth. My
2: birth was everything that I didn't know I wanted it to be and everything that I did want it to be. And my birth is the experience that I wish, um, the feelings of my birth is the experience that I wish for every birthing individual because I felt supported, I felt comfortable and I felt at ease, which are two words that are comfortable and ease are not usually associated to birth. <laughs> but. Um, I did feel comfortable and at ease because I felt supported, which was probably the most important thing. Um, Especially having had both a hospital and a home birth experience. I think that I can fully speak to a home birth experience and confidently say that a home birth experience was what my family needed um, to complete our story and start our new journey as a four person family um i i had anxiety around how my labor would have started because with my first um labor my water broke like tv worthy if i was in public i would have been embarrassed <laughs> like it was what you see on tv but what books say don't happen for 99 percent of people um Water breaking, pre um, like contractions, um, water breaking to these like proportionate amount, etc., etc. It doesn't usually happen. So in my mind, and having known that, and having been in conversations with my midwife about that, um, we both agreed that the likelihood of my water breaking prior to me going into labor uh, probably wasn't going to happen. Um, that being said, the reason why I had anxiety was with my first labor, my water breaking let me know, hey, you're going into labor, even though contractions didn't start for until hours after. Um, so not having that indicator, I was very fearful. I was like, what if I'm in labor and I don't realize I'm in labor and knowing how quickly my labors progress? What if I'm out here and I'm realizing, oh, shoot, I'm in labor and like I'm transitioning so quickly that my midwives can't arrive in time. So I was very fearful that my midwives would not arrive but that was not the situation. I did not have to fear that because my water did break astronomically proportionate t v worthy amounts once again <laughs> and it broke in the middle of the night um after dealing with some um lack of sleep. <laughs> let's call it that um i was went to, to i was ready to get to sleep around one thirty in the morning, and I just felt three slow gushes. Not slow. Let's say they were quick. Uh, Gushes happen, and it kind of felt like I was passing a blood clot. And I thought to myself, "That's just extra fluids (laughs) leaving my body. I don't have to be worried." Um, But my, in my heart of hearts, I knew that it was actually my water breaking. But because it was over a week before my daughter was due. I did not feel prepared. I still had a list of things to do uh, to prepare myself, to prepare my home, <laughs> um, to prepare my mind. Um, yeah, I just didn't want her to come when she did, and so I told myself, "Yeah, that's not my water breaking." And then it happened again, and it happened again. So I got out of the bed to look, and there was nothing. And I was like, "Yeah, that's just extra discharge." At two thirty in the morning, I was like, "Okay." that's not extra discharge anymore because I had a really big gush (laughs) and I turned to my husband and I'm like yeah I'm in labor just like casually and nonchalantly and he's like what wait huh what I'm like yeah and I remember having a little like a a five second crowning thing my husband saw it and I was like it's not supposed to be happening now (laughs) collecting myself um that I was going to get a shower. And put in the load of laundry that was supposed to go in in the morning, put that load in, <laughs> prep our bed, um, and do all the things that we needed to do to get prepped for the home birth. Um, and my husband was like, you're crazy. Just get some sleep. And I'm like, I cannot sleep now. Are you nuts? Like, there's ish to be done before people come to my house. <laughs> I need a shower before people are all up in my business. Um, this, this is just messy. Like, no, no, no. Things need to be done. So three o'clock in the morning, I'm doing laundry. I'm freshly showered, praying that my toddler doesn't wake up. And lo and behold, my toddler wakes up. So like four 30 in the morning, my husband's like, go to sleep. We all need to sleep. Um, and it, I didn't start experiencing contractions until around five o'clock in the morning. Um, at that point, I was able to time the contractions, but they were so inconsistent. Um, so I just slept. I slept from 5 until 7, and it was about 7, 730 that I called my midwives just to tell them, hey, my water broke. Um, it's up to y'all what you want to do, but I'm, I'm over here with broken waters. Um, my contractions stopped around that time as well, and I realized that I could bring the contractions as I wanted to. So if I went up and down the stairs, as I was doing, as I was just getting the house prepared, I would get a contraction. But just standing there and loading the dishwasher or um, cleaning the kitchen counter, I wasn't going to get a contraction. Sitting down, I wasn't going to get a contraction. Um, So I realized that I was in greater control of my labor than I thought possible. Um, So I just did stuff to not get (laughs) contractions. until my midwives were able to say that they were on their way so at about 10 o'clock they had called and said yeah we can be there in 30 minutes and literally two minutes later um they called and they said hey um we can't come there's been another emergency can you wait and I was like yeah I can and it wasn't until after 12 that they said okay we're on our way um and I was like cool and they're like you can start doing whatever you need to to bring contractions and I said, "All right." Um, and I just bounced on a ball and nothing was really happening. I mean contraction started, but nothing really happened. And it wasn't until they arrived um at 130 um, that they they came, they measured, I was barely two centimeters dilated. Um, and they asked me, do you want us to do a stretch and sweep to like expedite this process? And I said, no. <laughs> didn't want (laughs) that discomfort and um, they said well I mean you could go with that or we're already all up in there let's just do it and I said you know what you're smart that's why you're the midwife because my fear was talking they did the stretch and sweep they left our home at 2 o'clock by 2.30 we called them to come back they came back by 3 o'clock and by um, 4 Minutes to five, um, our daughter was born, and I was holding. So, um, from point of um, when they did the stretch and sweep, and I was roughly two centimeters to the point of holding her was three hours. Um, Yeah, and our daughter was downstairs. Our eldest was downstairs and with my sister-in-law, and apparently, my daughter was chill and calm and dancing to my birthing sounds and excited um, and she was annoyed when the midwives left because she said they don't know what they're doing mommy <laughs> they don't know what they're doing because my baby sister's not here yet <laughs> so she um, was very comfortable and normalized with the birthing experience um, I had a very similar birthing experience um, in terms of the trajectory that the labor was going in um, with the baby's heart rate dropping at point of pushing, um, while I was in the hospital, an obstetrician pretty much told me that I needed an episiotomy and vacuum assistance. Um, but with this, my midwives helped me with the pushing process. I had no tears, um, even though I had an episiotomy, so I was super grateful for that. Um, I had roughly 10 minutes of pushing. Um, Yeah, and I felt empowered and emboldened throughout the experience. Um, I had my affirmations pasted to the wall. My midwives were reading it to me as I was um, laboring. I'm very vocal, not just in terms of like first sounds, but I'm very vocal in knowing what I need in labor. Um, So I just let them know, like, I need someone to be applying back pressure. I need somebody to to hold on to. Um, Please turn on the fan. Please do not move. Please do not touch this. <laughs> um, yeah, and it was it was an ideal experience. Um and with my first, which was funny, with my first, I did not um I did not have any music. I did not want any music, I did not want any sound. Um, and this time around, I actually had D'Angelo's untitled playing on repeat for three hours. <laughs> um the entire time, and it actually helped a lot in terms of getting my mind to a place outside of myself um, that was familiar and comfortable and leisurely, uh, because that's all the emotions that that song brings to me. Um, that really helped walk me through the contractions, um, and got me to the point of of holding my girl. Um, it's funny because every time the angel asked, "How do you feel?" in my head, I was like, "Not so great," <laughs> but. Um, but as my midwife read my affirmations, this pain serves a purpose, and um, yeah, our purpose arrived very safely.
1: Come on, home birth. Yes. Come on. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. yes. And you know it's it's interesting um, also from the perspective of hearing your first birth and like you know hearing you. Talk about this one. They're both beautiful, but especially that moment. Um, like I remember you talking about needing to get the episiotomy. Well, them indicating that there was a need. Mm-hmm. We're not going to say needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in that same place with this one mm-hmm. in your um, just the difference in that. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. The difference in response. Um, and the difference in support. My midwives just like, they got dirty with me and were like, look, this is what's happening. This is what you need. This is what you need to do. And this is what we need from you. So get it. And I did it. And with an obstetrician, it was like, I was pushing for like two minutes, if that. And they're like, baby's heart rate's dropping. This is a dangerous situation. We need to get the baby out. We're going to recommend a episiotomy. We need to do this now. We don't have time to wait and think about it because this is a, this is a, a less than ideal situation. And it's like, of course, especially as the first time, you're like, I'm going to do whatever I need to make sure that my child is healthy, especially, again, being a Black individual, birthing individual in a hospital space. I needed to make sure that we're all coming out there alive. So I was like, yeah, if this is what we need to do, then this is what we need to do. But there wasn't that support in... Pushing, for example, um, guiding me through that process, encouraging me through that process um, to do what my body needed to do to get my baby earth side. Um, It was just a a snip and let's do this. This time around, it's like, nope, you can do this. You are capable of doing this. We believe that you are able to do this. This is what you need to do. This is what your baby needs to do. And this is what we will do to help you do what you, you can. Um... And for it really felt like I was able to tap into my fullest potential um, physically because I was supported mentally. It wasn't fear-based. It was fact-based. It was your heart. baby's heart rate is dropping, but you're so super close and you can do this, so do it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's completely, completely different.
0: It's interesting that a lot of decisions made by Black birthing people are led by fear. Um, Whether it's been fear induced by your provider, by the headlines, by a friend's story, like everything just goes back to just surviving versus, you know, our, our counterparts are going to have these experiences where they're, you know, they don't necessarily think about not making it out. And it's at the forefront of everything with us when it comes to birth, which is...
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was even a part of the anxiety that I experienced in deciding and adhering to the decision of a home birth. I was fearful that as a Black birthing individual, that if I was home and something happened, while my midwives would do everything in their power to support me, should I need hospital attention, at that point, all bets would be off. Because I was so fearful because I'd be going to a hospital that I didn't want to go to because I've had negative experiences that I believe were racially bound um, at that facility that I was like, I don't want to go there. But in an emergency situation, it's like less than 10 minutes away. Of course they would bring me there. Um, I was so fearful of what it would mean to have other medical professionals um, caring for me um, who did not know me, who did not have that personal relationship with me. And that's not why my midwives provide me with the quality care that they did. Of course not. but. Um, you don't know. Right. And when you hear these headlines and when you see these headlines, when you hear these stories of, of individuals, um, racialized or not, who are dying in childbirth in your own area, um, it's, it's a lot less foreign, it's a lot less distance. It's, it becomes a lot more real. Um, and, and no one who who deals with these traumas go into it thinking, oh, it's going to be me. You, you really think, oh, that happens, but it doesn't happen to me. It doesn't happen to people I know. It, it, it won't be me. But well, why not you? So I think that's another thing too. We really think about that as well, where it's like, it could be you. Um, is a very real, um, factor that, that is a, is a big fear, like a big, uh, driver of fear. Not fear.
0: Not even just the fear, and then it's also the blame is put on you because you didn't make the decision that they wanted you to, right? So just further complicates it.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. And it, 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 when you're in such a vulnerable state and you're not, I, because that was one of the other things too, with between my home birth and my hospital birth experience, going back to the point of my breath, my voice is my power. And when I was in the hospital, they told me not to make any noise or make any sounds while I was pushing. And I was super noisy in my home birth <laughs> because my voice and my breath is my power. So making the noises I needed to to tap into that power physically to do what I needed to do in pushing helped get my child earth side. Not having that as a tool to empower me in my hospital birth experience resulted in me having a weakened pushing ability, which resulted in this episiotomy that they claimed that I needed. Um, so I think that's the other thing, too, needing to to know what your powers are, but also having someone to advocate for you because you're in such a vulnerable state. They're coming to you with this major decision to make in your most vulnerable state <laughs> when you're hoping that people will be there to support you and help you make these big decisions. And to your point, putting the blame back on you if it doesn't work out.
1: Um, tell us about how postpartum has been. The early parts, you know, postpartum forever. So, where are we at right now? <laughs> we are in a two month window. Um,
2: Soleil has it turned two months on uh, March 27th. And um, postpartum this time around has been different because it sets its own, it has its own set of challenges. And obstacles being a second time parent because you have a first, your eldest child to look after, <clears throat> your body is going to recover differently. Um, family dynamics are, are going to be different. Um, recovering in a pandemic definitely plays a role. Um, so it's it's different, and that those difficulties make it different. Um, but it was also somewhat easier. Um, and I don't know if it's because I had a home birth that it feels like it was easier. Um, Or because I didn't have any tears (laughs) Um, that made it easier. Um, But physically, my recovery was less painful, but it took longer. Um, And I feel like it took longer because I didn't have as much downtime as I had before. Um, But it felt easier because I had less to recover from. I was also in the comfort of my own bed from the beginning. I was in the comfort of my own home in that familiar space. So that could have contributed to the feeling of ease around it. But the difficulties were much greater in the sense of how do I balance my time as I transition from one to two? How do I um, do this without the support of friends and family because we're in a pandemic? Um, How do I still let go of um, the fact that people won't care for, like, to just summarize it, um, that was something that I remember talking about with my therapist too. Where I was just like, I'm doing this in, in my pregnant state now, this being therapy, I'm doing this now in the hopes that it will make my postpartum recovery easier because I will be equipped with the tools, um, through our conversations and our sessions, um, to overcome the grief and the emotions that I will experience postpartum. And that being, I know what it's like to give birth to a winter baby. People don't like to leave their house in the dead of winter to come and see your child, see you, um, support you in those ways. Um, It's dark by like four (laughs) o'clock. It's freezing cold. There's loads of snow. You know what I mean? Like people don't want to leave their house once they're inside. Cool. Um, So I know what it's like to give birth to a winter baby. It's tough. I've heard that second babies, it can be tough too, in terms of support, because people are kind of like, oh, you've done this before, you don't need as much help. So winter baby, second child in a pandemic, people can't come to you even if they wanted to. Um, You want to protect your child and your family health-wise as much as possible. Um, You want to protect yourself as much as possible from any potential exposure. So knowing that I was giving birth to a winter baby, who's a second child in a pandemic, made me so scared of what my mental health would look like because of the fact that there's seasonal depression, there's postpartum depression, there's pandemic depression. um, That could all be potential factors playing into my overall well-being. Um, And I think that the reason why recovery felt easier in that sense is because I had prepared for postpartum mentally as much as I prepared for my birth plan while pregnant. I saw it as being equally, if not more important um, because I knew that I was going to have to show up, not just for myself, not just for my husband, not just for my child, but for two children um, and doing it without support. So I would have to be at the best that I could be postpartum um, with all things considered because there was a lot of things stacked against me. So, um, yeah, I I would say postpartum has been good, but with a different set of challenges in the first time around.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. thank you.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. I'm so glad.
1: Is there anything else that you want to share with listeners, resources, advice, anything else from your birth?
2: Um, move to Canada. You'll get free midwifery and therapy care. Um, no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, on the real though, I would say um, be honest with yourself about where you are mentally. Be honest about your fears about your pregnancy and postpartum. Be honest about the quality of care that you're receiving. Um, and verbalize Discuss that with your loved ones and your support team. um, But also discuss that with your healthcare providers. Uh, Don't be afraid to do that. So I think that would be the best piece of advice. Um, And the other piece of of advice I would say is what I have found, uh, and I can confidently say now that it's my second time around, The hardest part about being pregnant and the hardest part about postpartum isn't physical, it's mental. It's all a head game. (laughs) And if you can condition your mind to get the support that it needs or um, to work through the challenges that you may be experiencing uh, or whatever that might look like. If you can get your mind right the process can look differently for you than being a fear-based process. So for me, that included affirmations, that included therapy, that included being honest in conversation with my family members, my husband. Um, But yeah, I would say that it's really pregnancy, parenting, postpartum, it's it's much more uh, mental than physical. So do what you need to, to get yourself
1: right mentally, indeed for okay. sure. Yep, all of it. Our head space is <laughs> to get us because <laughs> that mind will play some horrible tricks on you about what yeah. you are capable You're and incapable of doing. Um. Mm-hmm. So yes. Well, we are extremely grateful for you sharing your second story with us, um, for your honesty and transparency and sharing your experience with us. Um, We just feel honored to have two of your (laughs) birth stories, both of your birth stories here. So incredibly honored to, to share this space with you in that way. So thank you. And thank you for having
2: me. Thank you for holding this space, um, not just for me, but for other racialized birthing individuals who so able to share our stories and connect with one another and build this community together. Thanks
1: for listening to Birth Stories in Color. To hear this show and other episodes, head to birthstoriesincolor.com. The Birth
0: Story Love Letter is a unique offering that captures your personal experience. This offering is a keepsake or memento of sorts, a treasure capture of your sacred life memory. A love letter to yourself, your children, born or unborn, your family and friends, community, and ancestors. This offering includes recording space to share your story, edited audio of your birth story, and transcription of your birth story in both a digital and custom-created hard copy. This is our oral history gift a story that should be honored by being heard, shared, and remembered. Stories shared in this manner are for the storyteller's personal use. They will not be shared via the BSIC podcast. Head to the Birth Stories in Color website to begin your love letter.